0: This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech, human stories for startups. Rebel you've your dress. Rebel your face is a
1: mess. If my work can do anything to try and get somebody off death row or out of prison who is innocent of the murder, I think is you or I, and I've got some tools at my disposal, it's my moral obligation to do something about that.
0: Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk, a brand new podcast that celebrates rebels across every walk of life. Each episode we talk to the troublemakers whose predilection for bending the rules is driving progress, change and transformation. I'm your host Mark Schwaking, and today I'm joined by Tim Samuels, documentary maker, broadcaster and author. Not your average journalist, Tim's known for making loud and at times uncomfortable social statements through his documentaries for BBC One and BBC Two and as creator and co-host of Radio 5 Live's Men's Hour. Tim's first book, Who Stole My Spear? How to Be a Man in the 21st Century, points to a growing crisis in masculinity. A crisis, he says, is resulting in issues such as male depression, suicide and imprisonment, and which is crying out for some honest and open discussion. You were an aspiring journalist from age three or four, weren't you? <laughs> uh, On Piccadilly Radio in
1: Greater Manchester or whatever yeah, it so it was. once the first pubic hairs yeah. appeared, there, yeah. was a, there was a sort of journalist that, yeah, and I was hanging do... around... In your summers doing internships while we were all trying
0: to play football and, and yeah, probably just getting no, tired it, of kicking it, you out. It and... was after
1: a very... I was doing music reviews for you know, the school paper and then local news age 15 in Manchester and interviewing Morrissey at 14, my hero around the corner. So I had a very early exposure to that and was quite captivated by the media. But with, on the... I, I mean, the I, I was always from, quite careful because the stuff has generally been for the BBC, so you can't take a very partisan view. But if... I think for me, the trick was avoid party politics. If you're doing something like ageing, no one's going to take the opinion of, well, we should treat old people worse. You know, it's it's broadly apolitical, though you will try to be hold the government at the time to account. No one's going to say we should treat our soldiers worse. As long as you're not taking a side in politics, you know, you can come down on one side for Brexit and then do a big BBC programme on that. I think if you're doing something which... Politicians generally would agree with. Then I think you can get involved. I think that was a lesson I learned quite early. But for, for me, I, I guess I crossed the line when I, I was doing local news, and I came across the story of a guy who was on death row at the time in Florida from London, Krishna Maharaj, who I was convinced was innocent. And
0: sorry, you were convinced. You I was... looked at the evidence. Yeah. And had an instinct?
1: I had an instinct. Because you weren't Um, at his trial? No, he'd already been in jail for at least a decade by the time I came across the story. Clive Stafford Smith, the extraordinary lawyer who runs Reprieve, was running his case. And very quickly I kind of crossed the line of, I think he's innocent and I want to use whatever media I can to... Pressure for his case to be taken seriously for some sort of retrial. So, what did you know, you I'm do find, you think? Know, so, I'm finding, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing people who were with him at the time of the murders who say he was 30 miles away in Fort Lauderdale. He wasn't there. And there are six alibi witnesses, none of whom were called to testify in his trial. Not that You've got six people who say you weren't there. Not one was called to testify. This is 80s Miami. If you've watched Narcos, the context is drug fueled, corrupt cocaine crazy city at the time where the judge in his trial was arrested and let out of court in handcuffs for taking bribes in another case. This is a time when police are being charged with corruption and charged with trying to kill off other members of the police force for prosecuting them. You know, it's kind of out of control. Why was he the scapegoat? <sighs> Essentially, the victims, looks it looks like they were trying to defraud Pablo Escobar of money. They were money laundering for Escobar and skimming money off the top. He was not a good person (laughs) to get on the wrong side of. We now have members of the, uh, former members of the Colombian cartel who say, oh yeah, Escobar ordered the hit. Your guy from London just set up, you know, he just, you know, he knew the victims and he was set up to take the rap. And I, I remember saying to my editor at the time at Newsnight, you know, just to be really upfront with you. I think he's innocent, and I'm and I, I'm going to try and push for that. And she said, "Well, look, she was great. She said you wouldn't be doing the story if you didn't think he was innocent." I said, yeah, and I was so trying you to were get... given
0: license to go because my question to you is, as somebody that's known you for thirty yeah. odd years, you have got an instinct for not breaking the rules, but pushing at boundaries and pushing harder if somebody tells you no, and you've got mm. an instinct and an ad- not an addiction, but you like to see how far you can go. And I just wonder at that point when you make that judgment call, and by the way, mm. it, you've got six people testifying, not, not yeah. being asked to testify who can claim he was somewhere else. Obviously that's more than an instinct yes. and an inkling. But, but but I just wonder, do you have to check yourself at that point and
1: go, is this just me looking to push? Yes, yeah, no, I mean, you constantly check yourself as to, am I being, am I right? <laughs> Is, you know, is there any counter evidence I'm swatting away because it doesn't fit my narrative? And, you know, as a journalist, am I still putting the other side of the story? You know, it isn't propaganda. And, you know, I have to be balanced because there are victims here and there are victims' family members and I have to re- be respectful to that. But yeah, unashamedly, I crossed, you know, I, I, I there was a line and I know I was crossing it. And I must have done that story a dozen times. And it's got traction, you know, it's been picked up elsewhere and and hopefully this year there's a federal appeals judge who's going to say, listen, actually, there is prima facie evidence of innocence, I'm going to listen to the case. But, you know... Does that traction then post-validate what you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah.
0: Because you say that you cross a line, you're aware you cross a line, it might even have... And it probably did. Actually, it might even have repercussions on the way I am viewed by those that I need commissions from.
1: Yeah, um, because you don't... so it might change
0: my reputation as a journalist. But I am going to go there anyway.
1: Yes, there is still a machismo in journalism. Well, some parts of it where if it looks like you are too seduced by the story, if you know, if you've swallowed the story and become a kind of a, a bit of a bleeding heart, that you've crossed that line and you've wussed out a bit. But I didn't care. You know, if my work can do anything to try and get somebody off death row or out of prison who sh- who is innocent of the m- murder, I think, is you or I. And I've got some tools at my disposal. It's my moral obligation to do something about that.
0: When you look back on, on a career of... I mean, it hasn't <laughs> all been putting yourself out to follow a passion that's been lit in you for helping somebody in need. I mean, you have been caught caught trying to nose-swab top politicians to prove that MRSA can be picked up at a hospital visit and mm. being kicked out of this and that. But mm. but sometimes you've gone looking for elves in Iceland as well. There's, been, there's <laughs> been quite quirky, humorous stuff. Are you proud of your portfolio? You must be proud. But then there's another question, which is you're telling so many stories about others around the world. Is there a need for you as a freelancer looking for commissions to be constantly telling your story as well?
1: Unfortunately, you don't get to do all the stories that you want to do you're at the whim of commissioning. If I had total license over what I could do, I'd be doing, you know, at times you'd be doing different stuff. Other times you just have to take the work or hope that, you know, you can do the best that you can. I guess in this day and age, and it's probably pertinent to, to your background, there's an awful sense of you can't just do the stories, you know, you have to who are you as a brand, you know, how do you build your brand and how do you do social media? It's it, tiring, isn't it? I just lose the will to live. You know, I'm, I really don't engage in social media other than a very cursory um, smattering. I, I I just see it. It just feels too narcissistic. It just feels like I don't... Who's going to care what I'm having for breakfast or what I think about something? You know, for me, the stories have been the the important thing. And... Putting them out there and telling those stories and being creative, but it just feels like there's this, is, this is kind of other piece of homework that I never really get round to doing, where you have to build your brand and tweet this and do that, and I, I and I'm sure if I was coming to the industry now, that would be second nature to me, but I you know I don't wake up in the morning thinking oh, I've got to tell the world what I think. I've, I'm much more concerned by how do I do the work that I want to do that's probably to my disadvantage.
0: It's worth at this point just, I suppose, explaining as simply as we can how, mm. we, how we first met and how we know each other. Tim and I were something that's far more acceptable really in the US than in the UK. We were summer camp children. We used to go on summer camps together uh, unbelievably. It
1: sounds, it sounds so it sounds uncool. a little bit it
0: sounds so dangerous. Essentially,
1: we went down from the north, went on summer camps with Londoners. Yeah.
0: It, tried to pull them.
1: Yeah, we, we it was our first exposure to um posh lasses. Yeah. And how they might and, be attracted and, to a bit of rough. And good mates. I mean, Great I'm, mates, a lot You of know, people.
0: you want more about the posh lasses. Yeah. The, it, we don't You know, (laughs) Um, those camps were where I first saw you rebelling. I saw you rebelling at every level. If there was a hole to crawl through to get to tuck shop before everybody else got to tuck shop, if there was a wall that you weren't allowed to, you know, go through or over, if if there was a, a rule, you had this deep instinctive need to push boundaries and to, you know,
1: yeah, no, no, no. I wonder.
0: I, I wonder if that is that plus the need, which also I think came out of those summer camps, to want to make a difference to
1: people. Think, those two I, drivers are really shaping. I think, you. I think, I think I, this, is, this turns to a free therapy session. Thank you. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think, I think they were really formative years for us, and I think they probably built on existing traits. You know, look. You know, I came from a uh, well. There was some fairly serious childhood fuck-ups which you know probably left me unsettled and also being the youngest which probably left you know leaves you clamoring for attention or pushing back against society in some way so you know i'm I'm sure all that had, had i had a perfectly functional childhood filled without parental death remarriage divorce losing several families along the way then i I don't know. I'd probably be a, so, a solicitor at the moment and um, earning a lot more money, and, and um, finally so, married with children living in the suburbs. But so, I, I so, so, I'm not.
0: The thing that I found most interesting about your book was that I heard or read your story about your mum for the first time. Mm-hmm. Now, I I used to come and see you in Bowdoin in the flat uh, where you lived with your dad, a famous jazz photographer uh, Sefton Samuels, and. I loved coming to stay with you for a couple of days yeah. when we were teenagers because you had no parents there.
1: Yeah.
0: Sefton was away yeah. all the time. It was almost like we were independent, yeah. cooking for ourselves, pissing about, hanging yeah. around, playing football outside yeah. in the park. There was no rules. You were always an independent loner who let other people into your life and your uh, ecosystem quite easily. And that that was really interesting to me because I saw photos of your mum in the flat and asked you about your mum when we were kids, and you told me that she died when you were was it seven years old? Yeah. yeah,
1: seven is a really not ideal time to lose a parent. Yeah, you know I think when you look at the kind of psychological vulnerable zones, it's like fucking bang in the sweet spot of, you know, Freud would freak out. You know, it's it's really seven's not ideal, uh, and I'm sure it has an incredibly shaping effect on you you know the more you do I'm not in therapy at the moment but when you the more you talk about this stuff with therapists you know they literally like oh you know this happened this happened when I was seven they literally sit up it's like they've won the therapeutic <laughs> jackpot yes yeah, and like- then you lob in another divorce a couple of years ago and they just, you know they think they're they're going to get paid forever off for this one but then I do think back you know when I talk to people and they say actually you know before that you were a a gobby git or a, or a naughty child or, or, were you? or yeah, or, or, or mischievous or, you know, were, so, you, were yeah. you naughty at school? It sort of fluctuated between naughty and stiff, depending on yeah. what, what era I was in. And bizarrely, like we had, we we did have this kind of procession of au pairs who came through the house after my mum died, trying to vaguely keep some nutrients in the fridge. Uh, <laughs> I mean, with various degrees of success, but one got back in touch actually a couple of months ago. She, Found me on Twitter, strangely, despite not really being there. But she found me and got in touch and she said, Yeah. I remember when you about eight or nine going around the house interviewing me. I was like, what? She said, Yeah, it's like a reporter you interviewed. It's like Wait, interviewed for a job or interviewed like a reporter? No, I was pretending to be a reporter, I was interviewing her. (laughs) Aged eight. I was like, I have absolutely no memory of this. Yeah. It's extraordinary. So, like, you know, who knows what makes you you know, there were so many different genes that might kick in or epigenetics that get activated by the environment or traumas or positive things, you know, it's like things which which you do, which get reinforced, you know.
0: It seems like a good moment to go on to the book that you published last year, Um, Who Stole My Spear? How to Be a Man in the 21st Century. Yes. Now, some of the main themes in there are something we should definitely explore, but just on what you've said, you love coming up with ideas. And uh, there's a line in there about how you somehow resent, sometimes resent work's ability to roam and pillage so freely in your mind the whole time. It's almost like the pressure of being a man uh, today, and we'll talk about men and how you got onto that theme, but part of it is a huge part of it is defined by work. Um, and your work is actually coming up with ideas. And I mm. wonder if you ever switch off, because I remember you and I went on what must have been actually for both of us, I'm guessing. Our first stag weekend together many, Mm. many, many years ago. We had a raucous night down in Brighton with 30-odd boys. And the next morning, everybody was sitting in the sunshine, kind of coming to on the beach. Mm. And there was all sorts of nonsense going on. And you went for a little walk, and I I, I went with you. And we went up to a – it was just a table where somebody was selling secondhand books. And you looked at a book cover that had a picture of a gun on it. Mm. And you turned around to me and said, I wonder whether – there's more guns in London than there is in New York. And it struck me then that you never switch off. You're always yeah. looking for a story. A really you know? ridiculous question, probably clearly not. But,
1: uh, <laughs> <was laughs> but you never wasn't, stop.
0: Wasn't a journalistic high, that question. <laughs> well, you'd just been, yeah. uh, honestly, the night before, yeah. uh, nobody expected you to be at your best the yeah. next morning.
1: But It's a sort of blessing and a curse because when your work doesn't neatly fit into an area it's hard to switch off because if you think, well, I could be doing a book, I could be doing a radio program, I could be doing TV. You're always looking for inspiration. The ideas fire up and, you know, whether it's the cliche middle of the night or mid meditation or in the shower, where it happens to be. But it's it's not good for relaxing. Yeah, it's not good for cortisol. It's not good for saying I'm not doing any work today. You know, and part of it, I guess what I wrote about is how work is this pervasive thing and it's really hard to switch off and it's not it's not good and it's not healthy so you
0: are the presenter and creator of bbc radio's men's hour Mm. you have put together uh, not just the book but a number of different uh, stories about what it is like to be a man today Mm. and you speak to a whole generation of men who are finding it hard to be men uh, we uh, st- across a huge range of themes. Are we meant to be masculine or sensitive? Are we mm. uh, meant to be the breadwinner or you know the the present parent? A lot of different things. That stories that aren't being told. Actually, not only did that come as a a kind of new thread of material to talk about at the time. You've actually been turned a little bit into even more of a rebel now with the emergence of hashtag me too. I mean, it's a... Sort of the amazing... I don't know if you'd call it a movement or whether that's patronising with two blokes to be talking about, but we're starting to talk properly about the role and power of women these days in a way that probably we should have been talking about as a world, as a nation Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, but there just wasn't the... it,
1: It feels deeply unfashionable and counterintuitive to say at the moment, hey, what about men? Yeah. For me, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not at the expense of women. I just think men and women can both have better lives. And I think we really ignore what's going on with men at our peril. I think there is a profound red herring, which is that men at the top, at the very top, are doing really well. At the top of any field? Running businesses, over, in, overrepresented in the FTSE one hundred in government, and that creates the false impression that men as a whole are doing really well. Take those men away, and you find that there actually are a whole swathe of men who are are really struggling at the moment, and that is represented statistically in vastly overrepresented in in, in prison, amongst homeless rates, four times more likely to take their own lives, self-abuse rates... And it just feels that there is this kind of underswell of of thwarted masculinity and men really struggling at the moment. Trump is an expression of when masculinity goes toxic and the anger and frustrations lead to recklessness. The greater social force at work, I think, is the men who don't feel like men, the guys who are out of work. The guys who feel the sense of loss. Loss is an incredible psychological motivator. You feel loss twice as strongly as you feel that you've gained something. So when you go to the casino and you lose, it feels worse than the equivalent pleasure that you get from winning. And that's why people are always chasing their losses and doubling up and doubling up. There's a whole group of men who feel that they've lost not just their jobs, their sense of identity, their uh purpose in society they might often lose their wives and when you lose and it drives that terrible anger and, and and rage and frustration i think it either channels inwards into something self-destructive whether it's depression and mental health and self-abuse or it or channels outwards into anger and it blames others and it blames immigrants it blames women and it and um you're so desperate to get back what you've lost, just like the kind of crazy gambler in the casino, that you think, fuck it. I've tried everything else. Why not try the thing that's going to tip over the casino table? And then you end up voting for Trump. You end up voting for Brexit. You, you drift to the far right. And it was in the 1930s. It was the, the exact the same, downwardly mobile, lower middle class that drove fascism in Italy and Germany. And I think, you know, unless you're taking what's happening So these men especially, seriously, there's a whole heap of political shit coming down the the road. Yeah, I mean, you talk in the book, in the
0: chapter specifically about work, and you talk about how problems are so much easier when you can find someone else to blame. You actually make the the startling claim that economic downturns are deadly, you know, when job security collapses and we see a spike in male suicide rates. So I think the, the statistic was an estimated... Ten thousand additional deaths in North America and Europe mm. attributed to, uh, to the, the, last the recession. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean there is, and, and we've got
0: more of that coming down the line potentially is, is a... with with Brexit and everything else.
1: We are, as men, for better or worse, inheriting two million years of hunter gathering. You know, since we were Homo erectus and Homo sapiens, we have evolved as hunter gatherers. You know, we and 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 that hunter gathering is work. And we get our sense of purpose, our sense of meaning, our sense of belonging and being part of something. Unfortunately, to a large extent, by our jobs. And those jobs have never, well, since the Great Depression, have never been more insecure. So many of us, we know we're not going to have jobs for life. We're not going to have colleagues for life. We are underemployed. We're unemployed and insecure. And that takes a real toll on your male psyche. I'm not saying women don't feel that, but I would argue that it's it's more hardwired in men to need to, to fulfil that hunter, that very basic hunter-gathering. You know, for millennia, we've woken up and gone out and hunter-gathered and worked.
0: Right now, respectfully, it feels almost ungentlemanly, almost impolite to start raising your hand and saying, hey... Men
1: have got it hard. It sounds really whingy. And when the dominant group complains about its lot, you know, it's like, so I feel more English than British and the English are being hard done over or being white is being done over. It's like, it's eye rolling time. But I think at a time when there's a whole heap of maltreatment towards women coming out and... It's not zero-sum. you know. We can treat women better and we can treat men better. I just think it's very lazy and short-sighted when you get that collective shrug of, like, oh, what have men got to complain about? Because if you want a better husband, if you want a better boyfriend, if you want a better colleague, then it's in your interests to make sure that that man is in a better place. If you don't want radical politics, if you don't want more Trump and Brexit then it's in everyone's interest to take the plight of men seriously. Not the expense of women, but take men seriously.
0: I grew up a journalist at the same time as you, and we, there were many moments in our development that struck me as milestone realisations. The first time I came out of court reporting on a murder... I remember all the journalists from all the national newspapers getting together and saying, right, chaps, what are we going to say? Mm. And I was gobsmacked. You know, you've all got these quotes, and you've you've, you've literally reported verbatim because you're allowed to in court. And now we're starting to figure out together what the angle is, like some kind of,
1: you know... In court, I used to actually have to sit next to the uh, the PA guy and say, what's he just said? Because I I, I didn't have shorthand. So I I, I couldn't keep up with him. Court reporting was terrifying. I just... I spent my whole time assuming I was about to cock up and end up in jail for, for contempt or defamation and then feeling terrible for the person who'd been accused. I just wasn't tabloid enough. I'd sit next to this guy, but, oh, tabloid, he's a scam, he's a monster, isn't he? And I'd be like, i really I'm such a liberal, I really feel for the guy that's just committed the murder as well. And it, I was useless at that.
0: But then the other part of your journalism career in the past 10 or 15 years... You go and campaign, you go and find the stories that are hidden and not being talked about, and you sort of shine a light and you get involved and you meet the personalities. And for me, a lot of the charm of the Tim Samuels storytelling is that you're uncovering those stories that are kind of in the walls. They're making up the fabric of life. So Mm. when you... I don't know what inspired you to go and find lonely old people and and start talking to them in Mm. their flats on the 97th floor and the poor woman that never got out and never saw
1: anyone... The way we treat old people in this country is a disgrace. And, you know, there's there's such profound loneliness and marginalisation of old people. And you can do it the straightforward way, where you, you know, it's like doing a panorama or something, you turn up and you show people in their flats and without company, and you, 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 you milk it and you put the music underneath it and you pull out the clips which make, their lives feel as bleak as possible. And you leave with a powerful story, but you make them feel worse. You kind of reinforce that you're a victim. And by the time that person watches the show, if they didn't think they were a victim before, they sure as hell thought they were afterwards. I thought, okay, well, there could be a better way where you can maybe take some of these people on a journey and get to the heart of how we treat old people by showing their potential. So what did you Bringing them back to life again. So all the old people who I gathered. How many? About 40. You know, uh, I went to bingo halls that were being shut down. Old people's care homes where people were just depressed and counting down the days. Tower blocks where old people were stuck on their own and couldn't get out. And and thought, okay, bring them together and do something which is going to take them on a journey and put two fingers up to society and challenge our preconceptions. So I thought, let's form the world's oldest rock group, the Zimmers, and brought them together in Abbey Road one day in the old Beatles studio and covered the who's my generation (laughs) good line, I hope I die before I get old. Today, you're not invisible. This is about old people not being brushed under the carpet. And what better way than breaking into the pop charts?
2: Because we get around the Zimmers! the Zimmers! The Zimmers! The Zimmers!
1: The documentary was made because it shows how old people are just brushed aside. Hi, yeah, I'm George.
2: I hear you're all over the I'm chart.
0: Fine. Yeah, let them see that older people can do things.
2: We'll make people think, after all, well, grandma's not so bad Yeah.
0: You don't have any stupid self doubt about is this journalism or am I allowed to tell this story and get involved and create something? There was the other one where you decided to take 100 people who had been directly affected in some way by a hospital superbug, MRSA, hmm. and you guerrilla attacked four or five different hospitals around the country, trained them to clean up a hospital properly. This was at
1: the time when people were dying because hospitals were dirty, and the government, when they went to inspect the hospitals would say oh we're coming next tuesday to inspect your hospital and so everyone will clean up and paint it so we wanted to make the point of what happens when you just turn up without any notification so we took about 100 or so people who, who'd had mrsa or spouses had died from it and hit the country's 10 dirtiest hospitals in a coordinated guerrilla raid dressed as trained hospital cleaners and it's quite hard to kick somebody out of a hospital if you say, oh, I'm actually just cleaning up. I'm here wielding a jade cloth and, and, and a mop. This is the story of how 100 people, all affected by the killer bug MRSA, decided to fight back in the struggle to keep Britain's hospitals clean. This
0: is for you, Dad.
1: Can we just stop this for a second, Right? right? We're just cleaning up. Hello, can we stop Sorry. Patricia, could we just have a, a quick swab? Quick one?
0: No? Tim Samuels, certainly one of my favourite storytellers but for me one of the best storytellers we've ever produced because he wanders around the world on our behalf going to find these stories from all corners and uh, gives them life and depth and, and prods us into action so thank you very very much for Thanks, the time Man, and good,
1: good luck with the rebellion you know, yeah. we you've managed to avoid talking about yourself but you know, you rebel in your own way and good luck with all this cause it, it sounds, Quiet,
0: it's considered and calm uh, while I sleep and then you know, a bit louder while I'm awake. Tim, thanks. Take, Take care. Part. Bye. Post match analysis for the Tim Samuels podcast with co-founders of Revel Tech, Nicole Lyons and Mark Schwakey. Hello. Tell me what you thought about that Tim podcast.
2: Oh, Tim Samuels. Um quite a quite a
0: you're a bit Amazing. emotional.
2: Aren't I'm, you? I'm a bit emotional. I'm sorry, our listeners. Tim was talking about the Zimmers, and I thought back to the documentary he did a while back, where he went in to visit Elsley people who are stuck in these massive tower blocks that couldn't get out for two weeks on end, that had lost their other halves. And I remembered how upset I got at the time, and um, my husband had said to me, "God, you really do have like a you really have a weak spot here." And I was like, "I do. Like, I just I'm so close to my grandparents, and I think." It comes from seeing them, knowing that one day one of them is going to lose the other. And right now we're spending as much time as we can with them. And it's just really gets me. So hearing him do what he does, like I'm just Tim, I I'm in, I'm in awe of you, but don't get too used to it.
0: Yeah. The thing about Tim is he's always had this sense of his own ability to change things and influence things and twinned with then a yearning to actually do it. Like he's always had this incredible sense of mission. I'll tell you what I tell him. I tell him that he makes more noise than the PR industry put together. <laughs> and I mean it. I'll tell you what I never tell him. What I never tell him that I actually probably became a journalist largely because of him. Cause I knew him when we were very, very, very young. And even while we were just kicking about and messing about on estates and playing football and, He was spending summers interning at Piccadilly Radio and when we went to those summer camps we talked about if he was ever given half a chance to be the reporter in some kind of wide game situation or some role of narrating what the hell was going on by being the reporter he would and he was successful as well and he's younger than me actually three months younger than me but I know but I always (laughs) kind of looked up to him in journalism stakes because he'd done it and...
1: Yeah, but he yeah. but
2: he's really down to earth. Like He's got such he's a lovely not. way about him. He's okay, not. well, he comes across to, to the rest of us as really down to earth.
0: Anyway, <laughs> you enjoyed it then?
2: I really did enjoy it, yeah. I want to hear what he hasn't done yet. What's his mission, something he hasn't crossed off? What's his bucket list for these documentaries? That's What's interesting. On his list?
0: Anyway, that was Tim Samuels. Uh, thank you to Tim for all the time he gave us. And uh, thank you, Nicole. Sorry you got a bit upset there. <laughs> It's time. That's it for today's episode of Rebel Talk. I've been your host, Mark Schwakey. Thank you so much for listening. My thanks go to our brilliant production team at Hard Six Audio, to Spirit Landing King's Cross for the beautiful studio, to my Rebel Tech colleagues and producers, Nicole Lyons and Meg Wright. Until next time, up the Rebels. Rebels, Rebel, you talk your dress. Rebels, Rebel, your face is a mess. Rebels, Rebel, how could they? I love
2: you so <laughs> I'm sorry. I
0: really like donuts. <laughs> <laughs>